Father, I thank you that you love us and that you have brought us together as the body of Christ. I ask, Father God, that you would minister to us. Holy Spirit, stir our hearts to be more like our Savior. I ask, Father God, that you would be with the children as they go downstairs. I ask that they would be filled with the truth, be with the teachers and the helpers. And I ask, Father God, that there would be transformed lives downstairs this morning. I ask also, Father, for transformed lives here and for all those that might be watching. Thank you, Father God, that you are powerful and magnificent. Thank you for this time this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Children are excused. This is Halloween. Halloween Day. And because Halloween fell on a Sunday, I I wanted to do something a little bit different, so I I interrupted our series from Genesis, and uh, we're going to look at a scary verse. This annual event called Halloween has its roots in Celtic pagan practices, and maybe you didn't realize that there's some paganism? Yeah, okay. Okay. The practices of the the pagans revolved around the fear of death, fear of the afterlife, and they used this as a a way to worship the gods so that they would help people through the winter months. The Romans kind of got involved with this time of year as well, and they expanded the practices. This, This occurred around 43 AD, and the Romans used this to commemorate the dead and to honor the goddess of fruit and trees. I'm not sure how they put those two together, but that's the Romans. The Catholic Church then got involved and blended church life with the pagan practices, and they called the day All Saints Day to honor martyrs. And so it was originally a day designed by the church to honor those that had died for Christ. That was expanded in a day to honor all of those who had died. Now what we see, this has changed and grown. Halloween is only second to Christmas in spending and activity. Second only to Christmas. I don't know how accurate this is, but I I, I did read one source that said six billion, that's with a B, six billion dollars is spent on Halloween. That's crazy. We, we had to retire our artificial Christmas tree last year. So Emily and I were shopping, and we found one we liked. And in shopping for that, we found that you can buy black, solid black, artificial Halloween trees. I, I, I didn't know all this was going on. I also didn't know, um, at, the, at some of the same sites, I, I grew up around Advent. And so we always had an Advent calendar or two or three and you open the little doors, you know, and it has a verse or something that takes you all through the, the four weeks of Advent preparing you for Christmas. You can do the same thing for Halloween now. So th- here, here we have this, this pagan day. In our society, we really celebrate this w- with centering around lots of candy. And this is always a hard time uh, around the office for, for Zach and I because it and Liz, and, and Megan, and 
anyone else because it just smells like you're in a, in a chocolate factory. There's, there's an odor of candy and chocolate all the time. So our celebration centers around lots of candy, but it also centers around death, the afterlife, ghosts, witchcraft, fear, and scary stories. This is the time when Hollywood typically puts out whatever their scary movie is. Or repeats it, yeah. <laughs> the, Bible, the Bible has some extremely scary stories. There's a few that came to mind while I was putting this together. One, one is right at the beginning, being driven out of the Garden of Eden by God. That would be scary. How about the angel of death coming to your community and all of the firstborn, uh, humans and animals, being killed? That's scary. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God's testing of Job. The gruesome methods that were were used at that time in warfare. Terrible. How about crucifixion, just in general, as a capital punishment? Revelation. The universe as we know it, dissolving and melting as it burns. Those are scary things. And and if, if, if we think those through, those are really scary. But there is one passage in Matthew that I believe is the scariest of all passages in Scripture. And I want us to look at that today. Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's scary. That's the scariest thing in Scripture. We find this this scary passage at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just taught about blessings and and living for God. Jesus teaches blessings and and details of the law. And he teaches about practical application and and a, a life of giving. Prayer, fasting, money, anxiety. He teaches all those things. And in a lot of ways, that sermon, it's huge, it's beautiful, but it's kind of a warm, fuzzy thing. And then he comes to the end. And he speaks very clearly about there only being a narrow gate into his kingdom. He talks about not knowing someone. That's scary. In this passage, in, this, in, in, in Matthew, the term Lord could be used as a title of respect and honor. That's the way it was often used in, in the language of the time. So you could use it for a political or military or religious leader, maybe a teacher. But because of the comments that Jesus connects with that, he gives those in verse 21, he connects some things with Lord, Lord, it suggests that these people are giving more than just human respect to Jesus. 
In calling Jesus Lord, Lord, they are using Lord in a supernatural way. And the way this works is a good Jew, a good Jew would never speak God's name because they didn't want to blaspheme. So they would use Lord to address Jesus as the one true God. They repeated Lord. So Lord, Lord, they're adding intensity. So they're emphatically stating really the reality of who Jesus is. He's God. So they're making this profession. They're making the proper profession. They're saying the right thing. James tells us that even the demons do that. And they shudder. In verse 22, Jesus says, On that day, many will say. And I believe that the day that Jesus is referring to is the great white throne judgment. Which means that those that are making this statement have already spent centuries in a place of judgment. So he makes this statement and everybody who's, who's he, he's referring to, very possibly has already discovered they missed it. This, in some ways, sounds just fine. They, they seem to be doing all the right things. They, they preached. They cast out demons. They did miracles in, in, in Jesus' name. It sounds like they are Christians. But there must be a problem for Jesus then to go on And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There must be a problem. And in verse 23, this is terrible. This is horrible. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here they are. Here's a person who comes face to face with Jesus. Now, what do you want your Savior to say to you when you come face to face to you? What I want is I want to stand before Jesus and I want him to say, well done, my good and faithful Savior. Well done. Come and enter into the, into the fellowship. You're home. You made it. Does that not scare you to think of standing before Jesus and having him say, I don't know you. You worker of lawlessness. That's why I think this is so scary. It's shocking. Take the time to think this through. And I don't think there's any way that we cannot agree that this is the scariest thing in the Bible. Here he is. He's, he's talking about, he's talking to devoted religious people. They're deceived. They're religious They have the right profession, but they're deceived in their thinking and are on the broad road to hell. That's horrible. It's massive. Paul describes deceived people in this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 2. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Notice that last sentence in verse 5. Paul says, they have the appearance of godliness. 
but they deny God's power. This is, this is a very difficult passage in many ways. It's really not all that hard in the Greek to, you know, to, to work it out. That's not why it's hard. This is hard because of what it says. And like, like Zach and I have told you many times, we are not going to avoid the hard things. So in many ways, this is a hard message. This is difficult. But it's vitally, vitally important because I believe in, in all the years that I've been involved as a pastor and a leader in the church that there are many people who profess to be Christians. They say, I am a Christian. But they're not saved. There have been some in the churches I've gone to and some in the churches I've pastored. There might be some here this morning. And there might be some that are watching. Just saying that you're a Christian doesn't make you one. Just verbalizing that you are a Christian does not make you saved. This is scary. Think about that. What, what if you think you're saved and, and that's your profession, but you're not? This is so important because in this kind of deception, what's the result? The result is hell, the eternal damnation. That's why this is so important and so scary. It's important to not be deceived. It's important for us to evaluate life carefully and check all the details. There's two things that I see going on in this verse for us. There's a lot of you here this morning that are saved. You're Christians. You're there. This verse has something for us as well. You're not deceived. But this is also a call to evaluate your life. There's an evaluation. And we'll look at that some more in a little bit. But this is so important for those who might be a part of Christianity, but they really haven't committed their life to Christ. They haven't checked the details. They're deceived. There needs to be an honesty with ourselves and with God. To help that honesty, I want to go through some indicators of deception. And some of these, it was crazy this week. There were two people who came into the office and, and I, I'm putting all this together and I'm writing this stuff and I'm trying to figure out how to get this down to a short enough message that you all don't just run out screaming. And two people came in the office and I'm going, these are like poster children for being deceived. They're deceived. They're telling me that they're Christians, but then I listen to their testimony. I listen to their problems when I listen to their life and I go, you're not saved. It's horrifying. It's terrible. So what are some ways that we can tell if a person is deceived? Well, one of the ways that you can see this, and this was one of the people that was in the office that I encountered this week. Some who are conceived are consumed with seeking feelings, blessings, experiences, healings, angels, 
signs and miracles. So they're after all that stuff. And what, they, what they're most interested in is what they can get. What they can get for themselves. Now, I like to see miracles and I like to see God do stuff. But that's not my focus. And I certainly don't do that because I want something. Those things can be fun to see. The person that's deceived wants what they can get. They really don't care about exalting Christ. A deceived person is also often more committed to their particular church, their denomination or or an organization, than their commitment to the word of God and to the kingdom of God. And Christianity for these people is usually social. And they're willing to work for a social agenda, even if the agenda opposes the word of God. And I'm going to risk something here. Sometimes you see this kind of deception because people are more involved in combining their politics with their Christianity. And if their politics don't work, then their Christianity doesn't work. And that's not what God wants. That's deception. It's an agenda that opposes the word of God many times. Another indicator of deception is people who only view theology and Christianity as academic. It's an intellectual experience. This person's spiritual life often revolves around just one theological point. And they constantly go to this one point as though they have extraordinary spiritual insight from God. And really what you discover when you work with this kind of person is their goal is to perceive as being closer to God than most people. Look at me. I understand whatever better than you do. They're deceived. The deceived often also have a fixation on religious activity. I've seen this so much in the church. Religious activity is seen as the equivalent to being Christian. I am Christian because I do these things. Sometimes I'll hear people say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to church. I've had them say, I go to church every day. No, you don't. (laughs) Don't lie to me. (laughs) Maybe you go once a week. Can, can, Can we be honest here? Come on. But what they're doing is they're making Christianity what they do religiously. It's all about the religion. It's not about the kingdom. It's not the the relationship with Christ. This was prominent in Judaism. A Jew believed that they were righteous because of their religious activity. They also see their righteousness Because they were born Jewish. So you were born righteous simply because you were born a Jew. And you maintain that righteousness by being religious. That's deception. In verse 23, Jesus says, I never knew you. Now when he says that, he means, I don't recognize you as a disciple. And you are a spiritual stranger to me. Doesn't that just scare the living daylights out of you? I I never knew you. 
coming from the creator of the universe. I don't even know who you are. There's a, a perfect example of this. And it's also related to, to being involved in, in religious activity. And that perfect example is Judas. Judas was with Jesus for three years. He was one of the chosen 12. In Mark 6, the, the word tells us about the 12 being sent out by Jesus. And he sent them out to do miracles and to preach the gospel. Judas was with those disciples. He's out there preaching the gospel, ministering to people. Healings happened. People are being affected by the gospel. He's involved in what God's really doing. But then we look at John chapter 6, beginning of verse 7, 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? He's referring to the twelve, and that includes Judas. And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. He was included. He's, he's one of these people. He was deceived. Now let's go back to Matthew 7. And, and there's a key word that we find in, in verse 21. But he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven, doeth, does. God knows the people who do the will of God. He knows who is doing his stuff. Where this should take us, whether we're believers or non-believers, it doesn't matter. If you're not living by God's will, whatever you profess, whatever you speak, really doesn't matter. If you're not doing what God says you should be doing, your profession doesn't really matter. So this is a hard passage. It should strike us in a difficult way. For those who are not saved, it should produce a fear and a desire. I want to really be a believer. I want to know Jesus in a saving way. And for those of us who are believers, it should produce a desire to evaluate our lives. Evaluation for believers is, is just as important as ever. It's something that God wants us to do. He exhorts us to exa examine, to evaluate our heart. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul goes through talking about the importance of communion. Coming to the Lord's table. And included in that is a time of evaluating our heart. Get your heart right before you take communion. That's evaluating. That's the same kind of thing that this, this passage should drive us towards. Paul writes... A similar thing for us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Take the test. And if you fail the test, you need to understand, if you fail the test, you're going to hell. That's not what he wants. He wants you to take the test and say, I'm saved. I'm Jesus. I'm with Jesus. I'm his. We need to look carefully. We need to look 
carefully at our sin and we need to look carefully at our motives. The truth about the gospel is that it produces. It produces something. It produces men and women and children who joyfully do the will of God. And those that do the will of God do it as children wanting to please their loving Father. We don't do these things to get saved. We get saved and because we're His, because we belong to Him, our salvation produces works. That's what James teaches. Faith without works is dead. We get saved and we do. Now, for those of us who are believing, believers, we, we know that there's this doing of God's will and that we will fail. Now, I can, I can only evaluate my heart most accurately, you know, unless I'm totally deceived. And so I know I fail. Maybe none of you do. So I'll just preach to myself. We know there's an answer for when we fail. We know that from 1 John. First John, I love 1 John. 1 John 1, 1.9 teaches that the believer does something that's connected to evaluating. 1 John 1.9, we confess our sins. If we do that, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess. Confession of sins is evidence of belonging to Christ. And confession also requires continually evaluating the condition of our heart. If you're not continually evaluating the condition of your heart, you're not going to make a confession about your sins because you're not going to realize they're there. When a person is saved, the presence of the Holy Spirit also produces fruit. So on, in, in one way, we, we can start this conversation about fruit by saying, if you realize in your evaluation you have sinned and you confess that, that is a kind of fruit. But there's more fruit. Galatians 5.22. A saved person produces fruit. What's the fruit? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's fruit. A person's fruit identifies the genuineness of their conversion. If you evaluate your heart as a believer and you're not, you're not able to go, man, there's a lot of fruit here, or maybe just a little, I'd be concerned. What's your fruit? Now, sometimes we, we struggle because we have hard times. Am I producing a lot of fruit? Well, maybe not. Maybe I'm just in a place where I'm just, I'm just hammered. I, I'm tired. I, I'm having a hard time. And in my evaluating, I may go, I don't see any fruit. But the Spirit of God is there to help us understand there's something more there. The tendency, the, the path of the believer is to produce fruit. This goes back to verse 21, chapter 7. 
doing the will of God. We, we can't expect perfection. In this life, none of you are going to be perfect. Instead, the idea is that there is a general direction of a person's life, attitude, and the fruit that corresponds to the truth of God's word. There's a general direction. A Christian who is not deceived longs to obey and longs to build their life on the solid foundation of biblical truth. That's a part of being truly saved. Now, I think that to help us, especially as believers, to identify this this saving faith, because I've been around believers enough that there's some believers who just get to a certain point where, where they begin to doubt I have screwed up so many times, I must not be saved. In some ways, there's some health in that because you're at least evaluating. But I think we also need to have some encouragement that there are, there are things in our lives as believers that show this progress. And there's some of these that help us to know, here's where I need to work. So let's look at some ways to identify authentic, saving faith. One of the identifiers of saving faith is a heart that's overflowing with love for Christ. Nothing else matters. (laughs) What's most important? Jesus. It's a continual heart to be in the presence of God. There are a lot of things that we like. There's a lot of things that we like to do. But there's nothing more important than being with God. There's nothing more important than Jesus. And so this is a continual pursuit of God's word because you want more of Jesus. And this also includes a continual desire to tell others about the greatest love in your life. Authentic Christianity is marked by you can't keep from telling people who you're in love with. Jesus. Another way to identify saving faith is there's this overwhelming sense of refreshment and joy when you find a new truth in Scripture. This happens all the time to me. I, I hope it does to you. I'll get in the Word and maybe I'm just reading just to read or, or maybe I'm studying and, and I'll go through and I read and I turn the page and I read and I go, okay, who reprinted my Bible? Whoa! When did they put that in there? And it's a new truth and it just, it just wow, look at that! And you're just amazed at what God has revealed to you in His Word. And the only way you can experience that, by the way, is if you're in the Word. You want to you get a fresh revelation from God? Then open the book and start reading on a regular basis. Go there and go there and go there and go there. And all of a sudden, God goes, that's who I am. And you just go, ooh, I like that. That, ooh, I like that. That's part of being saved and knowing you're saved. A third way is... How sensitive a person is to sin. 1 John 1.10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. 
and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Believers know they sin and we hurt when we sin. And when we hurt because of our sin, we go to the only place we can go for relief of that hurt. A true believer then walks in the light, always confessing sin. It hurts. When I sin, I hurt my daddy. Paul teaches this idea well in Romans chapter 7. He says, For I delight in the law of God in, the, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What he's saying is the true believer is so weary of the burden of sin that they cry out to their loving Heavenly Father. We cry out, I sinned again. Abba, Father. This is the believer's response to sin. And if that is your response to sin, then you have eternal life. You have salvation. And even though you're grieved by your sin... You can still enjoy your position in Christ because that doesn't change. You may grieve over your sin, but the Father sees you as righteous in Christ. Another identifier of saving faith is obedience to God's word. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Loving the brothers, keeping the commandments. These things that God gives to us in his scripture. That's how we know. True Christians are known by their obedience to scripture. True Christians are not known by their emotions. Or, or their mystical experiences. Those are not indicators of a person being saved. I cut my teeth as a believer in the charismatic movement, and there's a lot of things that I, I got out of that that are really good. There's, there's good people there, so don't take this as too harsh. But many times I saw people who were totally involved in, in their Christian life because of the emotional high. It was about emotions. That doesn't mean we don't get emotional. I've led people to Christ and I've wept to see someone rescued from hell. I've also grieved when I've watched people who have denied Christ. I've celebrated as men and women go, yeah, I'm going to step up and I'm going to be a part of the body of Christ in a way I've never been before. Because I want to glorify, I want to glorify Christ. There's emotion that happens. That's good, but that's not the identifier. The identifier is obedience. 
to God and to his word. Saving faith is, is also identified by rejecting the world system. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Love for God cannot coexist with love for the world. The system of Satan encompasses false religion, crime, godless philosophies, godless living, sexual sin, drunkenness, materialism, and on and on and on. And we can identify that and some of us just go, man, what is going on in our society? It's the world. Believers reject that. That's not what identifies us. The world doesn't identify us. Our life in Christ identifies us. When you're saved, you don't love those things. You don't love the things of the world. Now, we, we know, because we we're not perfect, we may fail, we know that we might, as believers, get lured into them. We may, we may get involved, and there may be a time where we're kind of involved in the things of the world. But the system, the overall system of the world is something we hate. We don't want to spend our time there always. And if we do get lured, the Spirit of God works with us, and He brings us to a place where we evaluate, we confess to God, and God saves us. He takes us to a new place. Paul helps us again with this in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That's the key. I do the very thing I hate. I hate being part of the world. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is, not, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Believers hate the world and hate sin. The reason that Matthew 7 is so incredibly terrifying to me, so incredibly terrifying to me, is because people who are deceived about their salvation, if they're truly deceived, they're going to hell. Now, there are, there are people who have, who have come to Christ. They are truly saved. And their life may look goofy and, and hard, and maybe it doesn't look like they're saved. Once you are saved, you come to Christ, you aren't losing your salvation. That's not, I don't want anyone going there. Let's make that distinction very well. If you have been saved, if you are truly a follower of Christ, that does not change. There may be circumstances where, where you're struggling with sin or the influence of the world, but your salvation is secure. Got it? But there's a distinction between that person and someone who's deceived because they're going to hell. And that makes this the scariest thing in Scripture because they may appear like they really, they really got their stuff together. But they don't. There's, there's nothing more terrifying to me 
whether it's this idea of deception or any, any, any other lost person, eternity without God is the grossest, ugliest, most horrible, dreadful, gruesome, sickening thing I can think of. There isn't anything worse than being separated from God. Therefore, the, the call of this passage and others is examine your life. What fruit is evident in your life? And if you're here or, or you're watching and, and you've really not made that, that true commitment to Christ, come to Jesus. Tell him that you agree with, with what the Bible says and tell him you know who he is and that you want to live for him. Forget about all the other stuff. Make it all about Jesus and you. And if you're here and you're saved, examine your life. Go all the way. Agree with God about your sins. Cry out to God for his mercy and grace. And for both groups, whether you're saved or unsaved, be transformed. Be transformed by the power of God's word, by what God has given to us. I want to finish with an encouraging passage from 1 John 3, 21 through 24. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, I'm going to stop there because you will know your heart doesn't condemn you if you do regular evaluation, if you're with him, if you spend time with him. If our heart doesn't condemn us, then we have confidence before God. And whatever he asks, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And love one another. Just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. And God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. There's a confidence and there's an assurance that believers know. There's also things that need to show up in a believer's life. If we're believers this morning, let's evaluate well and confess our sins to God. And if you're here and you're not saved, come to Jesus. If you want prayer, I will make myself available. There's others here that would gladly help you with that. Let's make it all about Jesus. Father, thank you that you loved us and you sent your son. And I thank you, Father, that the work on the cross paid it all. I ask, Father God, that we would be so consumed with Jesus, that our lives show fruit, that our lives reflect your presence. It's all about you. Lord Jesus, thank you. I ask, Father God, that you would continue to work in us. Holy Spirit, stir us up as a people to love one another and to be obedient to your word. 
And I ask, Father God, to any of those who are believers who are discouraged because of life, that you would stir them up right now. Holy Spirit, fill them with an assurance that they're saved, that, that God loves them, and Father hasn't forgotten them. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done for us. Thank you, Jesus, for your willing sacrifice. Holy Spirit, work with us. Thank you, Father, for your word. In Christ's name, amen.